Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Do we really mean the things we sing when we sing patriotic songs? Hi, I'm Arthur Brooks, and this is The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Welcome to Season 2 of the podcast. This season, we're going to be talking about the theme of love, why we need more of it in our lives, and the steps we can take to get it. This episode, we're talking about love of country, patriotism, nationalism, and what's an appropriate and effective way to show love for your country. Do you love your country? Um, I, I do. Being able to say, yeah, I'm an American, yeah. The situation's going on, but still, proud to have the opportunities that this country gives you. I love what we are meant to stand for. Do I love, do I like, yeah, I love being in America, yes. Uh, yeah, I love my country. It's not uh, perfect, there's flaws, but, uh, yeah, I love my country. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, parts of it, yeah. I really absolutely do, yes. It's de rigueur across all respectable political positions to say that you love America, but nobody ever asks, what exactly does that mean? So you drill into a little bit more and people will say, love of country is patriotism. patriotism. So, okay, that seems fine. That's relatively sanitary. That means that you're a patriot, that you would, if you needed to, you would sacrifice for your country. Maybe you would go to war for your country. Who knows? Maybe you would say that you would die for your country. But that's actually not the only way that people talk about love of country and traditionally have. There's another term that is starting to be thrown around a lot, which is not just patriotism, but nationalism. The idea that what you love is not the idea of your country, as if it could exist in any population at any time, if you have the, the right set of institutions and culture and laws, but rather that it's a, it's a place, it's a people, it's blood, it's soil. It's not just institutions, it's institutions that are based in a unique history that's brought down in the bloodlines. That has an entirely different feel for it, and that's one that suddenly stops feeling, you know, wave your flag on 4th of July and feel good eat a hot dog, do some fireworks, and go home, to, wow, that seems sort of dark, actually. 
Where did the term blood and soil come from? And naturally, what you're going to think is that it started with Nazi Germany, but it started much earlier than that. As a matter of fact, as far as we can tell, it comes from the 19th century in Germany under the reign of Otto von Bismarck. This was at the time of the end of the Franco-Prussian War when Bismarck was trying to unify Germany. And to do so, he would glorify and elevate the German peasants who worked the land. He would emphasize that they had the purest bloodline, and as such, they had the greatest right, natural right, to rule the country. Well, that concept, of course, grew, and it metastasized across Nazi Germany, and this persisted certain times and in certain variants up to this very day. Now, why are people talking about nationalism? Well, there's a huge wave of nationalist sentiment all across Europe and South America and Russia and China, where people are really talking about blood and soil identity. And as these nationalist movements spread elsewhere, Americans said, see, this is how we're different. You guys are nationalistic. We're patriotic. You have a country that you think is based on blood and based on soil. Why? Because we have a country that's not based on blood and soil, but based on an idea, an idea that we want everybody to share. When we say God bless America, we're not saying God bless the actual land. We're saying God bless the idea of a free country in which anybody can integrate, anybody can live, anybody can be part of the freedoms that we hold so dear. And then it came to America. In 2016, a lot of people were saying that Donald Trump's not just patriotic, he's nationalistic. He was defining America, not by who is American, but also by who isn't American. And then in 2017, in Charlottesville, Virginia, there was a white nationalist rally. You heard people chanting, blood and soil. This is something that goes back at least 150 years to Germany, and maybe even before that. So here's the question. Is nationalism love for country? Is it patriotism? What is love for country? What does it actually mean? That's what I want to dig into in this episode. We're going to hear a range of views on the podcast today. I talked to Paul Miller, professor of the practice of international affairs at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. I talked to him about the nature of patriotism and the dangers of nationalism. Now, at the other end of the spectrum of views on nationalism, we find Rich Lowry. He's the editor of the National Review magazine, and Rich is a defender of nationalism. We dig into what he means by this, what nationalism is, or at least what Rich thinks it should be, right here in America. But we're going to start with Prerna Singh. Prerna is the Mahatma Gandhi Associate Professor of Political Science and International and Public Affairs at Brown University. And she's a scholar on nationalism. This season of The Arthur Brooks Show is based on the theme of love. And this particular episode is based on the idea of love of country, which we toss around a lot in the United States. What does love of country mean when I say it to you? So there's a joke among scholars of nationalism that there are almost as many definitions of nationalism as there are nations. But I think this idea of uh, thinking about it as you just did, as love of country, is a quite nice way to think about it. There is a distinction that I don't make, but some do, between patriotism and nationalism. Um, But to me, nationalism is this love. It's, you know, it's been described, 
you know, social scientists kind of just shy away from love, hopefully not from love itself, but perhaps more from the word love. And so they would define it as attachment or affinity um, or allegiance. But it is love. Um, It's this attachment, allegiance, affinity to an imagined political community. And the idea is that it is based on an idea of a shared past, usually a common culture, which is centrally rooted in a notion of a shared language, and that believes it has the right to exercise sovereign rule. So that, I think, is quite key to the concept of nationalism. And so the word nation state, for instance, is used to describe states even when they contain multiple nations. To me, that's what makes nations um, such a fundamental form of political community. We live in a world of nation states, and as a political community, nothing is more important today than the nation. So there's a lot packed into there. Wow, this that's... Uh... I mean, of course, you've written a book about this, and, and, and each one of the chapters could be one of these shows. But a couple of things I want to unpack from what you just said. Mm-hmm. You know, love of country, which is how you identify nationalism. Other people call it attachment. And it's weird because it's almost as if once you get a PhD, you can't say the word love anymore because it sounds sentimental. <laughs> but, but, you know— it took me years and years, 20 years after getting my PhD to throw off my chains, and now I'm doing a podcast on love. Um, Sounds good. I'm yeah. going to use the word love. You've liberated me. <laughs> well, you're way ahead of me. You know, you're, <laughs> you've been able to come to terms with it before. And it's true that you, you know, we we tend to reserve the idea of love for people, for individual people, of course. And, and you just mentioned that you can't know personally and express love for all of your co-nationals. So it's kind of a concept of all the people in it. But here's the question that I have, reserving the question of patriotism versus nationalism for the moment. When people talk about nationalism and love for country, some people talk about it with respect to identity. And and that leads to things like identity politics, you know, who we are and who we aren't and who isn't one of us, versus how Mm -hmm. I hear you talking about it, which is more sort of shared story which is what we have in common and what other people can can enjoy what they can savor in our in in the common story that we have as a people can you dig into that a little bit so in a sense i think what you're getting at is this fundamental irony about nationalism because to me, at a very basic level, um, it is love. And yet, um, the popular and scholarly association of nationalism has been with this idea of hate um, of the other. And it has a really bad reputation. So when people think people think of nationalism, they think of discrimination, of xenophobia, of conflict and violence. And, um, and the idea, actually, um, for many scholars, was they hoped and predicted that with modernization, with industrialization, urbanization, um, higher education, nationalism would actually disappear, which is why the recent resurgence of nationalism is so shocking and distressing to many scholars. Let me see if I can kind of sum up what what, what you're saying here, Perna, just for the second. It seems to me that Mm -hmm. nationalism can be expressed in terms of hate, in other words, who we aren't and who isn't us, which is often expressed in identity politics, in which case... We're doing it wrong. We're understanding it wrong. On the other hand, nationalism can be an expression of love. And and in that case, it's a shared story about the things that we appreciate and that we're attached to in our societies. And in that case, that's how we're doing nationalism right. Is that fair? I, I think it's about the content of nationalism. So I find, you know, 
Trump in America, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Xi Jinping in China, Modi in India. I mean, these are deeply concerning forms of nationalism. But the argument that I'm trying to make is that nationalism need not just be white nationalism in America or Hindu nationalism in India. It needn't only be the nationalism of ethnic majorities um, that is at the cost and does not include ethnic minorities. Nationalism can be inclusive. It can be a resource. It can be a driver of development. And so it's not that we need to give up on nationalism. The idea is that you can have your ethnic identities. You can be Hindu, you can be Muslim, you can be black, you can be Latino. These ethnic identities do not in any way take away the possibility of your also being an equal member of a national community. That to me is good nationalism. So I'm the president of the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. It's a, it's a big organization. We've been around for 80 years. Uh, we have two fundamental principles that we do, that we believe in strongly, that we all believe in, which is this radical equality of human dignity and the limitlessness of human potential. Almost all of my colleagues are enthusiastic about the Ellis Island concept of America. We're very open about and, and, and embrace the concept of, of free trade. We believe that competition around the world brings excellence and that shutting down borders and competition brings stagnation and mediocrity. And I'll tell you the number one insult that I get. I mean, I don't spend that much time on social media, but when I do, because it's a kind of a contempt machine, when I am on social media, what, what do I get? You know, when, when people are, are trying to denigrate the work of my institution and me personally, they say, you're just a, a cosmopolitan elite. You're the establishment. You know what you are? You're a globalist. And it's not mm. meant as a compliment. Yeah. So it's interesting um, that this seems to come as a kind of pejorative term uh, for you. And it's – so I think to me it's this idea um, – and liberal elites have, have thought about this, perhaps from a slightly different vantage point, is that so cosmopolitanism, this idea of perhaps being, as you say, a globalist, was seen as being in conflict with being a nationalist. And one of the reasons why I think um, among scholars, nationalism has enjoyed this notorious bad boy reputation is because it was seen as being in conflict with cosmopolitanism. I mean, I think this is the idea that if you're a citizen of the country, you're not able, um, your, your attachment is to a country, it makes you less a citizen of the world. And I think it was this idea that, for instance, underlies someone like Albert Einstein saying that nationalism is the measles of mankind. So the way that I see it is that being a citizen of a country and identifying strongly with the country, so you're being an American nationalist, and also being a cosmopolitan, a citizen of the world, are not necessarily in competition. And in fact, they're complementary. To me, the issue becomes about the potential power of each form of identity as a motor for change. And this is where I think nationalism comes out on top. But the reason it does it is because nationalism is an attachment to a nation, which is a political community, which has resources, it deploys them towards, one hopes, the furthering of the well-being of its citizens. So it has capacities and it has obligations. And this makes attachment to a country, as compared to this idea of an attachment to the globe or the world, it makes it both stronger, but it also makes that attachment a stronger force for growth because national identity has 
an institutional engine behind it, which is the nation state. So to me, the problem with cosmopolitanism is that it's not attached to a political community. We have the United Nations, but historically and especially now, it's not a global institution uh, with the kinds of resources and capacities and intentions the way that a nation state is. So the difference really is that nationalism as an ideology has this potential as a motor for change, which cosmopolitanism doesn't. So to me, that push for open borders, um, that push uh, for free trade, um, if or the push for social welfare, comes from the engine of the state. Now, there's a potential downfall to this, which we see with something like climate change, which is a global problem. It needs to be tackled as a global problem. But because we don't have a kind of government of the earth um, and we don't have this kind of identity as earthlings in a sense, but right now the nation state is that ultimate form of political communities. But I don't think of your being a globalist as either an insult or in any way as reducing or being contradictory to your also being an American nationalist. That was Prerna Singh. She's the Mahatma Gandhi Associate Professor of Political Science and International and Public Affairs at Brown University and a scholar on nationalism. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're digging into the concept of patriotism and the arguments against nationalism. Thrilled now to welcome to the podcast Paul Miller. He's a professor of practice of international affairs at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, really one of the most famous schools of foreign service in the world, uh, arguably the best. And so you came to Georgetown, you wound up um, doing an MPP at Harvard, which is a master of public policy at Harvard, and then you came back to do your PhD in international affairs. Why? Well, in between, uh, I did a few other things. I actually joined the Army when I was uh, doing my master's degree at Harvard. And uh, I was very happy to have done that about 18 months before 9-11. And so I ended up, my first job out of college was being deployed to Afghanistan uh, for the early days of that war. Uh, and then I came back with uh, security clearance, time on the ground in Afghanistan, and a master's degree. And so I um, ended up working at the CIA as an analyst there. And that's what sort of started my career in international affairs. Hmm. You have thought an awful lot about the subject of this podcast, which is nationalism. Yeah. Th- this is a, a podcast that this season is focusing on love. And, you know, love takes a lot of forms. Love is generally thought of as a relationship or is the, the connection between people, the emotional connection between people. But you can love things that are not people, such as a nation. And that's how we think of nationalism. Alternatively, that's how we think of patriotism. This is the stuff that you think about. So you have concerns about it. You you have defined it. Set the table for us. Yeah, so absolutely. I th- patriotism is a good thing. Uh, love for country, love for one's own, love for the concentric circles of community that surround you is a good thing. Uh, I think we ought to cultivate uh, loyalty and affection for what Edmund Burke called the little platoons of, of civil society, of community, and of culture. But that's not patriotism. That's basically social capital, effectively, or community. And the... Those are institutions between the nation and, and the person. So, so, so define 
patriotism per se yeah. before we go further? So I think as that love grows and expands outward through those concentric circles and rises to the level of our sort of largest community, that would be, I guess, the national community or our state, our country is uh, the term I'd prefer. And when we have that uh, loyalty and affection for our country, uh, particularly in America, for the principles that this country stands for, that's a good, healthy patriotism. Okay, so so help me understand this. Why would I love America? It's because I, I adhere to the ideas of the United States, that I love the liberty or I enjoy the liberty. You know, what is it that would actually give me an emotional connection, something that would probably even a, 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 a connection that could be measured in my brain chemistry towards <laughs> something as amorphous, something as yeah. diffuse as a set of laws and institutions and, and shared history? I think there's a number of reasons to love our country. Uh, I think when we grow up, it's very natural to love what's your own, to love the things that um, surround you and kind of uh, define your life. And so loving your family, loving your community. Uh, and then we kind of rise to the level of loving our country as we learn about its history, about our struggles, our travails, and our triumphs. Those are all good reasons to love our country, but I hope we graduate, in a sense, to a deeper kind of love for our country, for this particular country, by loving its principles, by loving the idea of the American experiment, loving the universal principles. They're not, they're not American, right? But loving the universal principles that we try to embody, we try to make ourselves into a paragon, an example of these principles of, for the world. We try to be that city on a hill. And that should, I hope, inspire loyalty, patriotism, and love. Do you think that the love that people have for a country is really comparable that the, the patriotism that they feel as an instantiation of the love they feel, do you think that that's in any way comparable to the love that people have for each other that you can think of? Or is, or is this really a different kind of love, a different concept? Is it a, is it a metaphor for the kind of love that we feel between person and person? Uh, I'll put it this way. The closer our love for country gets to that kind of uh, emotional, pr sort of pre-rational commitment, the more nervous it makes me because I think you are stepping closer and closer to nationalism, mm. which is a different thing. Uh, I want our patriotism to be, yes, there's going to be an affection there and a loyalty, but it should be also tied to, again, the principles that our country stands for. I, I don't deny there's always going to be a pre-rational element to it, but if, it, if that's all it is, if all, our emo if all of our patriotism or our attachment to our country is just that pre-rational tribalism, then what moral content is there to that? Hmm. So what you're, what I hear you laying out here is that the, the love that you have for your children is a primordial love. Yeah. It's one that's no doubt in your bones because of evolution. Whereas yeah. what the love that you have for the United States of America is a philosophical love. It's one that's adopted because of the principles that you quite consciously have adopted. Yeah. N now let's push to the next level mm -hmm. because – when you confuse the two kinds of love, one which is primordial and the other is philosophical, you move from patriotism to nationalism, and that's really dangerous. Talk about that. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And uh, another way of putting it is when you treat the macrocosm, that is the country, the state, the nation, as if it were just a larger example of the microcosm, you get into a lot of trouble. If you try to treat the nation as if it was one big family, then, you, then you've crossed the line into, into nationalism. And I think that um, there's quite a, uh, quite a number of dangers there, starting with sort of number one, I think it's sort of philosophically incoherent if you push it, uh, because how do you define the nation? If you try to define the United States by a, a language, religion, or race, or ethnicity, or whatever else, it's going to end up being sectarian and exclusivist. You're going to exclude people who don't fit into that definition. If the United States, if, if our nation is defined by some shared trait, you're going to leave people out. They're going to 
be treated as second-class citizens, and the United States will fail in its founding principles of being a land of opportunity for all people. Uh, so I think the United States is best defined as a propositional nation dedicated to the principles of equality for all, regardless of what language or religion you have. So when I listen to leaders around the world that are nationalistic leaders, Viktor Orban, yeah. Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping in China, they talk about this kind of blood and soil. Yeah. And what they're doing is effectively creating this uh, this sort of familial type of love that you should have love for your nation because you're a part of this nation. You have sprung from the soil and those who have not – don't deserve your love. And that's what really alarms you, right? Because yeah. that's not a conscious kind of love. You make a, a stark difference between the love which is conscious, which comes, which is constituted in patriotism. Mm -hmm. And when you confuse the two, you get into trouble. That's right. I, just one little asterisk. I would acknowledge that our patriotism, we always experience it as maybe just a little bit of nationalism. In other words, I think we do feel that pre-rational, primordial sentiment to the United States. I'm okay with that so long as we are conscious to add that uh, con that layer, that philosophical layer on top of it, which I think takes the edge off of our patriotism or nationalism, nests it within loyalty to liberal principles, and that's a good thing. But what Viktor Orban is saying, what Vladimir Putin is saying is they don't want that philosophical layer at all. They just want the blood and soil, uh, which is quite dangerous. And if you look at the record of those sort of nationalist uh, statesmen uh, around the world, they are almost always the states that do not treat their religious and ethnic minorities well. Uh, they, they dedicate their nation to the promotion of their largest demographic group, the majority ethnic group, the majority religious group, and whoever doesn't fit in that category, they don't fare so well. So if I were to, you know, tweet out this, which, you know, at some point we will, because the Arthur Brooks show has a presence of social media, and I'm going to say, you got to listen to Paul Miller. This guy's awesome. He's talking about America. It's an idea. It's an idea. The idea of America is really what you're talking about, and it just it fires me up. I, I love it, actually, but I love it in a different way than I love my children. Man, I'm tracking with you 100%, yeah. and I'm going to tweet this out, and somebody's going to say, this is just more globalism. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is just more, you know, anybody can be an American, open borders. I know where this is going. Yeah. What says Paul Miller <laughs> to this criticism? I've, I've heard this criticism before. I bet you have. <laughs> My last book was on the virtues of internationalism. So uh. I think I'm probably a card-carrying globalist. <laughs> Prepare for incoming fire. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And so let me maybe differentiate my argument a little bit from what I'd say are liberal internationalists. Perhaps they did go too far. And I, maybe they merit some of the criticism of trying to create sort of this transnational global community, this cosmopolitan elite that has no culture and has no humanity. And they want to kind of rule the world through technocracy and bureaucracy. Um, so, yeah, I agree. There's some problems with that. That's why my book is about conservative internationalism. At the highest level, you have sort of what I would call the liberal international order. I want the liberal international order to exist and thrive and be strong, but I also want it to be fairly thin. What I mean is let it do the things that it can uniquely do, which is sort of keep the peace in the world and establish regional stability in Europe and East Asia. That's great. And then everything else should be done at a national level or lower. So I do want the liberal international order to exist. That's what makes me, you know, an internationalist as opposed to a nationalist. But I'm very favorable to the idea that we should do things at the lowest level possible, uh, keep them close to the people to make it more uh, valid, legitimate, and, um, and humane. Hmm. Your ideal, ideal state for the United States is pushing toward greater patriotism and shying away from greater nationalism. Is that fair? That, that's correct, yeah. Yeah. So what alarms you about what's going on in the United States right now? 
the rise of, of Donald Trump uh, was really the rise of a new mouthpiece for American nationalism. Uh, let's leave aside the criticisms about Trump as a person, because I think a lot of the commentary about him is focused on on him as a person, and I want to leave that aside. Think about the ideology that he's given voice to. He is an American nationalist, and he's attracted nationalists from a, a, a variety of different stripes. And so, sort of, his party has now turned into the party of populist nationalism in the United States. Conservatism, whatever that is, uh, in a pre-2016 sense, I think is not on the political scene right now. It doesn't have a vehicle or a party. When I say a variety of nationalists have sort of attached themselves to Trump's banner, uh, you see, of course, on one end, you see white nationalists, right? You see a sort of a racialist understanding. And they're a small crowd, and they're obviously wrong, and nobody takes them too seriously, but it's disturbing that they've gotten a new voice. There is a broader movement of American nationalists that, uh, again, want to define the United States by some something other than the principles of the American experiment, whether it be ambiguously our culture or heritage, or some quite clearly want to define America by religion, uh, folks who argue for kind of a Christian nationalism. Now, look, I'm a Christian. I'm a Baptist uh, and a fairly traditionalist one at that, uh, but I do not think it's helpful to say this is a Christian nation. Nor, nor is it accurate. Nor is it accurate, yeah, yeah. Like right. historically, obviously, most Americans have been professing Christians. That's a true statement, right. and that's that's not a bad thing. But to say that the United States is a Christian nation or a Protestant nation, as was usually said in the past, is, um, is not true to the ideals of the American experiment, and it's not kind to non-Christian Americans, of whom there are many. We should uh, support this idea of the United States uh, being a welcoming place for all peoples, regardless of language and of religion, so long as they're willing to accept the principles of the American experiment. And that, I think, is the most important thing. Tell me more about that, because what you've just done is you've, you've kind of built a wall there, didn't you? You want anybody who can come here, who can add, who can pursue and earn his or her success yeah. as long as they adhere to the principles of the American experiment. But yeah. that, that that in and of itself can be exclusionary, right? Well, that's an exclusion I'm willing to make. Uh -huh. uh, it is oh, it's necessary to have uh, uh, definitions around the, the nation or the, the people, the country. Right. It's necessary to have um, an uh, philosophical wall saying we are this people and we are not that people. Hmm. Look into your crystal ball a little bit, Paul, because um, that's what scholars are supposed to do. Right. It's not just to analyze, but also to to predict a little bit. Um, do you think the United States, which has taken certainly a nationalistic turn uh, of late, uh, do you think that we recorrect to our traditional patriotic uh, concept of loving America as an idea based on philosophy? and shared philosophy at that? Or do you believe that we're taking a, a permanent turn toward nationalism as the more primordial, uh, less conscious, more kind of evolutionary concept of loving country because we are a people, we are a, a specific people bound together by by everything from religion to language to maybe even genetics? Which, which direction are we going? I think quite a lot depends upon how the Trump administration ends, right? If somehow his nationalist agenda is seen to be, even by a third or, or, or fourth or a half of the country, as a success, then it will be seen as a model to follow by future probably Republican administrations and, and officeholders at the lower level as well. We'll see more sort of nationalist candidates at all levels of office. And I'm not entirely sure if that's happening yet or not. But if after the Trump administration ends, whenever and however that happens, uh, if the, the right, if the, if the I'm not sure, we're talking, it's not conservatives, if nationalists conclude, well, you know, maybe the trade policy made us poorer, 
Maybe the belligerent rhetoric got us into un, in an unnecessary war. Um, maybe uh, we, de- we need to take a close look in the mirror about how our nationalist rhetoric has treated our fellow American brothers and sisters who don't look like us at home. Right? If there's that kind of soul-searching and reckoning at home, then maybe nationalism will peter out or go back – not quite underground, but be a junior partner in conservative coalitions going forward. Because to be clear, nationalism is not new. It's always been around in American history, but it's usually been a sort of a junior partner on a, on, on one of the other um, uh, coalitions. Yeah. So your view is not that the American state of nature is patriotic and that we're in a disequilibrium in nationalism right now. You think that we could go either direction. We could become a nationalistic country as opposed to a patriotic, philosophically patriotic company, country. I think it's company. Company, yeah. yeah. Um, that's absolutely true. Uh, I, I am concerned about the possibilities within the broad American character. Uh, let's remember the greatest threat to the United States uh, in our history came from fellow Americans who wanted to secede from the country and create their own country defined on racial grounds. Uh, The Confederacy was America's greatest enemy and almost destroyed our country and almost succeeded in creating a version of America defined precisely in these nationalistic white supremacist terms. Uh, And if that had succeeded, it would have seen, be seen to have vindicated their values and given new life to it. And so, you know, victory and defeat in history really matter. And I hope to see nationalism be defeated. We're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear from Rich Lowry. He's editor of National Review Magazine, and he's a patriot and a nationalist. We're going to end the show now with one last conversation about nationalism and love of country by hearing from Rich Lowry. Rich is the editor of National Review magazine, which I've been reading for a long time. Rich is a political commentator on TV and in print. He has a new book out called This Beloved Country, a defense of American nationalism. Do you want to hear the John Stuart Mill definition? Yeah. I think think this, this gets to what I would mean by nationalism. He wrote, we mean a principle of sympathy, not of hostility of union, not of separation. We mean a feeling of common interest among those who live under the same government and are contained within the same natural or historical boundaries. We mean that one part of the community shall not consider themselves as foreigners with regard to another part, that they should cherish the tie that holds them together, shall feel they are one people, that their lot is cast together, that any evil to their fellow countrymen is an evil to themselves, and that they cannot selfishly free themselves from their share of any common inconvenience by severing the connection. Hmm. As usual, John Stuart Mill sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, you, you know, you know this too, but uh, yeah, I wrote a book about Lincoln. It's just so humbling because nothing you can write on the page captures it as eloquently as anything you're quoting from Lincoln. So you're con- you're constantly really showing the the paucity of your own thought by quoting Lincoln anywhere on the page, you know, where your own words are. And uh, it's somewhat true of, of Mill as well. Yeah, no kidding. But those guys would suck on Twitter. <laughs> um, so let, sure. let's start right there, Rich. I mean, you got this book coming out about nationalism, but you've written a lot about patriotism. You've thought about this a lot, maybe more than any other single thinker in America today. Tell me 
What's the difference? Nationalism and patriotism. If you want to get technical about it, patriotism, the root is the word patre, going back to Rome, fatherland, same root as patriarchy. And patriotism is just love of your own, love of your own land. Nationalism is a little different. It's a doctrine or belief that a distinct people with a distinct culture and history should occupy a particular piece of land and have uh, sole sovereignty over it. <clears throat> so I think they're complementary. I think you, you should be both. I consider myself both a patriot and a nationalist. But very often in our discussion, the this distinction is uh, blurred or everyone has kind of their own private definitions of the words. And very often, just in common usage, nationalism becomes everything that is bad about love of your country or every way that love of your country can go wrong. And patriotism is everything uh, that's good. And I think that's an unsustainable and incorrect definition, but it's what a lot of people use. You're a nationalist, right? Correct. What does that mean? I'm a, a patriotic conservative nationalist. Oh, okay. So we got some more on there. So, t so tell me, in your <laughs> view, just to just to narrow down a little bit, what does it mean what, yep. that Rich Lowry is an American patriotic conservative nationalist? But the nationalist part, what do you mean by that? I I believe we are a nation, which is actually in in some dispute. Some people will question that. Uh, I, I think we are a, a, a national community and a, a people and that our culture and history are extremely important and our borders and sovereignty are extremely important and the national interest and the interest of uh, our citizens should be foremost. Now, nationalism is an, it's an inchoate thing. You can be a right-wing nationalist. You can be a left-wing nationalist. Throughout the 20th century, there were nationalists who were communists, uh, fascists, but I think it's a, a very important um, sentiment and can't be and shouldn't be jettisoned. So when you say we are a people, which was the, one of the first things you said as central to your concept of nationalism, does that, does that have any racial implications to it? No. And I believe white nationalism and black nationalism are contradictions in terms. If you look at the rise of modern nationalism in the uh, 18th, 19th century, it was a liberal movement, and it was inspired uh, by popular the notion of popular sovereignty and equal citizenship. And I think that is what true nationalism is. And in the American tradition, it's been the nationalists running through you know, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Henry Clay, Abraham Lincoln— uh, who, you know, they all had blind spots, but were um, much more concerned with forging a national community of equal citizens than their opponents in the American context. And I, I just think in American nationalism, there were several big projects over the last several centuries. One was being independent from Britain. You know, we forged the, the most important and influential nationalist revolution. They wanted to have a country that could be defended against its enemies and defend its own interests. And, and then finally, in the 20th century, when international affairs becomes much more important as the nation's power grows, uh, nationalists like Wilson and FDR wanted to forge an international system of independent democratic nation states. So those five or six 
things have been the major priorities of American nationalism, which I believe, you know, being an American patriot and nationalist, is better than and distinct than other forms of nationalism around the world. So I think I think I'm getting it. You know, I've lived in Europe before, and when you when somebody says they're a nationalist in Europe, uh, you know, I, I I start to get really nervous because they're starting to talk about altar and throne kind of stuff, or or even worse, blood and soil kind of concepts. That's not what you're talking about with American nationalism, correct? Absolutely. And late 19th century, early 20th, you, in Europe, you got forms of nationalism that were tainted by racism, by anti-Semitism, by social Darwinism, by these other really malign currents in at that time, intellectual currents at that time. But those things are not the same as nationalism. So nationalism can be abused, distorted, corrupted, but that doesn't mean the thing itself is destructive or racist. And those those nefarious trends in Europe at that time, you know, ultimately lead to fascism, to Nazism, and in their most extreme form, Nazism, they transmute to something else. They're not nationalism anymore. Hitler's vision is not a nationalist vision. It's a vision of European conquest based on a superior racial caste that is more important than the nation, more important even than the German nation. And near the end of the war, uh, Hitler gives this famous narrow order where he wants to destroy the, the country, his own country, his own nation, because it hasn't proven itself suited to this poisonous racial uh, mission that he has set it on. Uh, during World War II. So Hitler, by the end, is the, the opposite of a nationalist. And I would just argue, you know, people associate nationalism with hatred and war. One, those things existed long before uh, the modern nation state, obviously. Um, and two, it, what really the drivers of most uh, conquest and bloodshed uh, had been the quest for universal dominion, certainly in the 20th century, it was transnational ideology, both Nazism and in terms of sheer numbers, a much worse communism that were the main drivers of the bloodshed, not nationalism per se. Okay, so a lot of our listeners are thinking Rich Lowry is arguing that nationalism is a good thing, but not the nationalism that we've often seen sort of metastatically passing through Europe in, in, the, in the 20th century and before that. Because nationalism shouldn't be racially based. It shouldn't be ethnically based. It shouldn't be religiously based. So what's going on in the United States today when we see something like Charlottesville, Virginia, and people are – clearly this is a movement of people who consider themselves to be white nationalists. What is it? And, and to be clear, this is something that you utterly repudiate, right? Of course. So this is it's, – it's a small but real and extremely poisonous uh, phenomenon that should be denounced by all people – of goodwill. And of course, one of Donald Trump's worst moments as president is when he, initial days, flubbed his reaction to it, said there are, you know, good people on both sides of that uh, protest, you know, which the one side was uh, at least racist and uh, perhaps Nazis, many of them Nazis, and it didn't say the right thing until under duress uh, a couple days later. But that that is not the main current of nationalism, it's not the main current of American nationalism, um, but it is it is a real thing. Um, so nationalism uh, says who's in, but it also therefore has to say who's out. 
who's not one of us? Who who should decide that? Well, a a, a nation is nationalists believe is a community, and the people who are in the community should be your top uh, priority. Now, there obviously there are policy and ideological differences about what uh, constitute the uh, policies that uh, serve the interest of the people within the community, but that should be uh, the top priority. And it, it shouldn't, you know, you're in, if you're in, it doesn't matter what your race, your ethnicity, or your religion is. So do you favor um, the kinds of policies that make it easier for people who embrace American values as you see them, make it easier for them to be in, in the nationalist tent? Immigrants? Yeah, we're talking about immigration. Yeah, or? I think we're really talking about immigration. So there are a lot of people who are trying to come to the United States right now. And and are, are you basically saying, great, immigration is terrific, but they really need to embrace this national ethos. And in so doing, then they're inside that are my nationalist tent. Is, is that basically what you're saying with all the policy implications that follow? Or are you saying there's something, there's some harder would, barrier to it? I would say a couple things. I, I think an immigration policy... It should be a national interest-based immigration policy, which means our, our immigration system and the numbers of people we are admitting, the kind of people we're admitting, should uh, be based on what is best for us. Now, people are going to disagree about what that, that policy is, but that should be the bedrock. It shouldn't be, uh, and except for in some exceptions, you know, refugee program, uh, people who have genuine asylum claims— it shouldn't be based just entirely on the altruistic notion. There are a lot of poor, desperate people on the outside, and we're going to let them in. And uh, there was a, a fascinating, we're on a Vox podcast, fascinating exchange in the uh, 2016 primaries between Ezra Klein and Bernie Sanders on exactly this point. And Bernie Sanders showing that nationalism, as I said earlier, is kind of an inchoate thing, expressed a very nationalistic sentiment on immigration policy, where Ezra's kind of pushing him, and forgive me if I'm not describing this ex exactly word for word correctly, but pushing on the notion, you know, if you care about inequality in a global sense, shouldn't we let all these people in? Because it's going to be, they're going to be less unequal here, they're going to be better off here than they were um, in, in other countries around the world. And Sanders says, no, we, we can't do that. I think he described it as kind of a, a, a Coke world idea. Uh, but we have to put our people and our workers first. And uh, on that sentiment, at least, and I, I'm not sure Bernie Sanders would say that out loud anymore because he was criticized very harshly for saying that. But I think that is the correct metric. And in, in terms of um, ideas and values, uh, you know, we don't we don't want to be admitting people who are uh, you know, terrorists or uh, um, coming here to subvert the country. Um but uh, beyond that, we don't really have an ideological test, and I, I think birthright citizenship is is sort of a, a sign that uh, we, we people who say this country is an idea, well, no, it's not. You're just you're born here on our soil, and you're American. No one asks you whether you believe in the Declaration of Independence or whether you believe in the separation of powers in the Constitution. If you're just you're here, you're here. And birthright citizenship, although it's been criticized uh, by some of my restrictionist friends in the immigration debate goes to the question you're asking. The, the community is, um, it, it's, it's not, there's no, there's no test to it. If you're in, you're in. Hmm. 
That's really interesting because you just touched on my next question, which is what is your criticism of the claim that America is an idea? Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what that means. I, how would people live in an idea? And if it is an idea, does that just mean everyone who shares this idea, if we assume we can agree on, on what it is, that everyone around the world is an American who believes that idea? If you just look at the, the easy kind of plain eye test, people around the world when Americans travel, you know, they're at a restaurant or at a bar, they'll say that's an American. There's something about them usually that marks them off as American. It's not the Declaration of Independence. It's, it's not the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. It's their manners, the way where they act. So that, that speaks to kind of a profound Americanness that has nothing to do with the, uh, um, an, an ideology. Now, obviously, our ideas and values are very important. They're part of our national identity. They're just not the entirety of our national identity. So just to, to say, oh, it's only the universal, just leaves out a huge part of it, which is the particular. And for most people, it's the particular that really uh, matters. It, it, that gets to where they, they live. You know, the mores of the country, um, the national interests of the country— so I think saying America is an idea is just a, a fairly thoughtless cliche that ignores all of that. So to um, maybe ask you to be a little ad hominem, and I apologize in advance, why do you think that people who say patriotism is good but nationalism is bad often resort to this idea that we're not a place but we are an idea? Why do you think they make this argument? I think it's a, a misunderstanding. I think it's a way – what they, what they mean is that our, ide our ideas and values are important, and they're, they're more important than uh, some nationalists say, you know, than, than Donald Trump says. And that's totally legitimate. I'm completely fine with that. You can have that argument in certain respects about Donald Trump. They, they may be absolutely correct, but if you, if you really think it through, I don't think it makes any sense. And I don't think any of our founders would have, if you told them they, what they were doing was founding an idea, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. That would have been a meaningless uh, statement. The American Revolution was a nationalist revolution. Hmm. Let's get to an expression that's regained currency in the United States in the, in the time of Trump that's a much older expression. That, of course, is America first. It has a, a pretty nasty past, but it just taken on its face that's something that you might embrace given your concept of nationalism, right, Rich? Yeah, the term makes me uncomfortable because of the the history, although in, in fairness, or maybe this is actually a criticism uh, of Trump, I think he's totally unaware of the history and just meant we're going to put our, ourselves and our country uh, first. It's, uh, I think, John McCain's slogan what, in 2008, I believe it was country first. That might be a better way to express it, certainly one I'd be more comfortable with. But the, the basic sentiment is sound. And I think one of the things that happened in the Republican nomination battle in, in 2016 is Trump was able to tap into a nationalism that has always been part of post-war uh, conservatism, but that become somewhat uh, submerged. Trump tapped into it. It had a great power for Republican um, voters and the rest is history. You know, every first-year philosophy student at university has to, the, the big problem that they have to cope with uh, is the, called the trolley problem, and you're familiar with it. It's the whole idea that 
if you have to save one person but sacrifice five, are you making a moral decision? It sounds to me like you have kind of a mm-hmm. kind of an economic trolley problem when you're talking about economic nationalism, right? I mean, how many how many Indians are worth one American? It, it, that, that's kind of what you're adjudicating, right? In 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 figuring out the the rules of nationalism, right? This gets to kind of the crux of the matter philosophically. In principle, you know, I wouldn't say this wouldn't guide my policy on everything, but in principle, that American, whoever he is, I don't care who he is. I don't care whether he's a billionaire. I don't care whether he's a, a janitor who sweeps the floors at night. I don't care whether he's black, white, Latino, Muslim, Christian, whatever. He is more valuable to me than the Indian. He is my first, uh, he's my first concern. Now, if there are legitimate things I can do to help the interests of, of Indians that aren't costly to my own country, if I can ally with India, if we can give them advice and guidance about how best to, to govern themselves and create a, a good economy, great, let's do it. But that, that, that one American is, is more important to me. So I think that we're actually coming to a kind of a concise definition of nationalism as you see it. it First, what it isn't. It isn't uh, blood and soil. It's not racial. It's not ethnic. It has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with class. That doesn't define who's in and who's out. But if I'm going to figure out if I'm a nationalist, here's the question for me to ask myself. Do I care more about an American than I do somebody who's not an American? If the answer is yes, I'm a nationalist. If the answer is no, I'm not a nationalist. Fair? I think so. So, and you know what, Rich, when I look around the world, most of the time when I hear people talking about nationalism, it, it, it makes my skin crawl, man. I mean, it's used by people that I think that have malign interests that are, are doing things that are counter to what I believe to be wholesome American values. What is it about nationalism that lends itself to be appropriated by people with malintent? Is that necessarily the case? And if so, why? And what can we do? Well, nationalism is a very powerful and natural sentiment. And as I said, it's, it's somewhat flexible and expansive, which l- lends itself to use and in some cases uh, abuse by actors across the political spectrum. And I, I don't know how – I don't have a ready answer to how you prevent uh, that. But just saying, oh, I'm not a nationalist because there's this idiot in Charlottesville who calls him a nationalist, I don't think is, is a good answer. One, because I think – in part because nationalism is a natural and powerful sentiment. You don't want to give it to the Nazis. <laughs> you just don't want to have the Nazis to be the only ones who call themselves um, nationalists. So I think the appropriate use of the term um, is important. And then for those of us who consider ourselves nationalist, and this is, this is true you know, in this period also of those of us who consider ourselves conservatives, we need to the extent we can to do uh, self-policing and, and draw lines and um, spell out very clearly what we think is is true and right uh, about our ideas and and attitudes, and differentiate that from freaks and uh, haters and smearmongers, and make it clear how and in what ways they're they're abusing these ideas. Do I love my country? There's a lot of really good things here. Uh, But having lived abroad, there's a lot of good things other places as well. 
It's a mixed bag. You know, I'm a Jew, and I think there's never been uh, a nation in the history of the world, um, you know, outside perhaps of Israel, where it's been possible to achieve the things that Jews have in the 20th and 21st centuries. I, I appreciate the, the sentiment of, of things like um, America being open to everyone, and I feel like at the moment we are not. I appreciate the benefits that I have from being this country, but um, I mean, it's a bit of a love-hate relationship. I, I mean, especially right now, I have really mixed feelings about it. And it's kind of, it's like what makes it so great also gives it the opportunity to um, make it not great, like we're seeing now. We started this episode saying that we were going to define love of country by looking at nationalism and patriotism. We were going to clear it up. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think we've cleared it up. <laughs> In many ways, I think I'm more confused about what love of country is now than when we started the episode. We heard a lot of different perspectives. We heard different definitions of what nationalism actually is, about what patriotism is. And so here's where I want to leave things. I want to ask you as a listener the question, what does it mean for you to love your country? Are you a nationalist? Is loving your country a question of loving the place and loving the specific people that have the label Americans? Are you a patriot? <laughs> Are you somebody who loves the ideals of America and the idea of what America is? Are you, like me, somebody who travels around the world and sees people you think are Americans already in their hearts, even though they're not in the United States? You know, you're gonna have to decide. You've heard people with real expertise who've been thinking about it, and they don't even agree on these definitions. They don't agree on what love of country is. There's no real way that we can settle it in this podcast. And I'll only ask you to do this. Think about it. Talk about it with your friends. What does it mean for you to love your country? Our team at AEI is Cece Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, Golda Arthur is senior producer, Jarrett Floyd is our engineer, and Nishath Kurwa is executive producer of audio. Our theme music is composed by Gautam Shrikishan. Please rate and review the podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Most of all, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.